Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Listeners with school-aged children may recall that Back to School 2020 didn't go as smoothly as hoped. Across the country, districts that had initially planned to reopen for in-person learning reversed course only weeks before students were scheduled to start. And many schools that did reopen for in-person learning were forced later to send students home for weeks at a time as community transmission rates increased or positive COVID cases surfaced in schools. Believe it or not, we're only about a month away from the start of the 2021-22 school year. So what should parents and students expect come August? Are students going to be back in person? And will plexiglass dividers, face masks, and deep cleanings make a return? And what steps should schools take to make classrooms healthier, not just during the pandemic, but beyond. Here to discuss these questions with me is Dr. Joe Allen. Joe is the director of the Healthy Buildings Program and an associate professor of exposure assessment sciences at Harvard's T.H. Chan Public School of Health. There, his research focuses on the critical role of the indoor built environment and how it affects our overall health. He also serves as a commissioner for the Lancet's COVID-19 Commission, chairing the Task Force on Safe Work, Safe Schools, and Safe Travel. Joe, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, Joe, I've been uh, following your writing over the past year, mostly on Twitter, and I've noticed that you have some pretty strong opinions on how and when schools should mitigate COVID threats and offer safe in-person instruction, and also on how well the CDC has given guidance in that effort. So for full transparency at the outset here, I frequently share your positions and, and have learned from your work. But that said, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here to sort of keep things interesting. Uh, that sound good? Fine with me. All right. So let's start by looking backwards. And I kind of want to focus on schools and school district reactions. So school reactions were obviously all over the place this year. But I could argue that there was a good bit of uncertainty about how to reopen and how to do it safely. And on top of that, the national and local politics really exacerbated that uncertainty. So given that, maybe it's hard to fault those who were remote too long or those that opened too eagerly. I mean, maybe they just did the best that they could. From your perspective, what would you say were the uh, school and district leaders' biggest foreseeable mistakes on reopening? And how hard do you think we should be on them? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I'd say the first thing we should talk about is the, the critical importance of kids being in school. That's where we should start because that should then inform every other policy and action, right? Um, last June, June 2020, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post. Yes, kids should be back in schools this fall. It wasn't just a blanket statement. We then gave guidance on how to do it. And we can talk about that guidance. I know we will, but I wanted to start there because that's what should drive everything else. And I think where districts and local leaders and even national policymakers failed early on was this assumption that it was too difficult. Well, let's take one side. Some schools didn't act at all to put in any mitigation. I think that was a mistake. And other schools said, well, it's too much. I can't do it. It's too hard. These are actually, isn't, it wasn't hard to put in the necessary controls to keep adults and kids safe. But we had to start with the first position that it was critically important to get kids back in school because the risks of kids out of school were extraordinarily high across many and multiple dimensions. Absolutely. Now, when we, we think about schools and districts, I mean, a big part of this is where they would look for expertise and authoritative 
explanations for what you should be doing. And, you know, the CDC plays a pretty big role in that. So if we turn to the CDC, I think you can also say that the CDC was a little bit all over the place this year and that they also faced uncertainty um, that was exacerbated by politics. Um, So same question for the CDC. You know, what do you think the CDC's biggest foreseeable mistakes were guiding schools over the past year? Yeah, I mean, we, we could start um, last year and then talk about what's happening um, this year and currently. But last year, the big problem was there was no guidance. Uh, you know, my team at this Harvard Healthy Buildings Program uh, at the School of Public Health, we wrote a report on how risk reduction strategies for reopening schools. Now, I never thought our team would be the, a team to have to put out a report, uh, but we were filling a gap. In fact, I think a lot of experts in public health are filling a gap by the prior administration, a gap in communication, research, you know, translating, uh, translating the science into what tips should be should be taken. So we put out that report in June 2020. Several states adopted it wholesale as their strategy for how to get kids back. So I think the first mistake was that there just was no guidance. I think the prior administration threw its hand up and just you know blurted out via tweet, schools should be open. That's right in the sense that they should have been open, but it's not helpful if you don't have any plan behind that. Not much of a roadmap. Yeah, it wasn't a roadmap at all. And uh, I think that was the, the fundamentally the biggest problem with CDC earlier. Now, there was uncertainty, right? But we actually had data, even in June 2020, that kids were lower risk, younger kids transmitted less, and schools, daycares, and YMCAs, some of them had been open through the spring, including in Europe. And we had evidence that we could keep kids and adults safe in these environments. So we knew it could work. And I could even talk about healthy buildings more broadly. We knew what what strategies are effective to keep people safe in all types of buildings, schools, offices, you name it. It gets back to ventilation, filtration, mask wearing. So we actually knew what the threat was. We knew how to control it. And our team filled a gap, as did others, uh, to create a guidance and a roadmap that schools could take and showing that it didn't have to be expensive or hard to do. And we released a series of other guidance documents after that. How to assess ventilation rates, how to choose a portable air cleaner for a classroom. So really we kept producing these tools to make it easier recognizing that if we if kids didn't get back in school in September of last year, there would be consequences. You know, we already saw virtual dropouts in the order of tens of thousands of students missing from the system early on, spring 2020. We knew that would continue to happen. We saw decreases in socialization, decreases in learning and literacy, uh, impacts on women who were disproportionately having to take care of kids at home. And we see these uh, that manifest in terms of women leaving the workforce. All of these things were predicted. We didn't get kids back in school. And sure enough, they all happened. I think we'll see effects for years, if not um, decades at this point. So big picture, we knew what to do. We, we knew they, these uh, approaches could work. The roadmap was given. And I think some schools did it and others uh, didn't, unfortunately. So let's turn to the, the most recently released guidance. I mean, just released on reopening for the fall. Just give me the, the basics of the current playbook that they're putting out. What is the CDC recommending? Yeah, I think uh, they got it right. And I wrote this in USA Today last week. Um, first, they place primacy on in-school learning. That might seem like an obvious statement, but it's really important for CDC to signal that that's first and foremost, the most important thing. Second, they reemphasize the importance of vaccines. Clearly, this is the path out of this uh, pandemic. So I like that they started there. They recommend masks for kids who are unvaccinated. However, they also gave needed flexibility. Uh, I wrote about this in, in May, where CDC came out with guidance. If you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask, right? Some people uh, thought they were uh, 
pulling back on restrictions too early. I thought it was right because it was a pullback from top-down federal guidance, recognizing that situation on the ground in Vermont is very different from the situation on the ground in Missouri. So this new school's guidance does that too. It recommends masking, but also recognizes that there needs to be flexibility in the system. And school districts should decide based on a whole number of factors. What's the level of vaccination? What's the level of community spread? So I like that a lot. Fourth, they really emphasized for the first time as with a full line item, the importance of ventilation. This is an airborne virus. It is spread through the air. Almost every single case of transmission that has happened has been time indoors in low underventilated locations. So they talk about ventilation uh, right up front and they actually link to good guidance. So that's nice. I also think they, they were clear again on not being so strict in terms of distancing. Remember last year, last fall, the six foot distancing rule was really what was keeping a lot of kids out of school because simply due to space constraints. So CDC pulls back on that like they did this winter. So three foot's okay, you should have these other controls in place. And they also say distancing should not be used as a reason to keep kids out of school. So in a lot of ways, I think they got it uh, right. They had some needed flexibility in there. They hit on the key elements, highlighting ventilation um, and also promoting vaccines. So Joe, I heard you mention ventilation a couple of times. Let's drill down on that for a second. So the American Rescue Plan put a lot of federal money on the table for, for schools, about $200 billion total in ESSER money, a lot by any measure. And when you think about that and ventilation systems that need to be fixed, I'm thinking retrofitting schools, HVAC systems, well, we have some money for that, but man, that's got to take major planning and, and, and time, right? Isn't the ventilation question one of the, the less malleable policy levers that schools can take because it's a, you know, it's a huge job to fix the ventilation system in these buildings, some of them very old? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a misunderstanding um, that's common, that, you know, this actually um, is not that hard. But let's, let's take a step back and say, why, do, why does ventilation matter? We have to start with how are we exposed to this virus? So when we talk, breathe, sing, we're constantly emitting aerosols, small particles from our respiratory system. If I'm sick and infectious, those respiratory aerosols will carry the virus. They'll build up in a room that's underventilated. Think about cigarette smoke, it builds up. Outdoors, not a problem. The wind's swirling around indoors, underventilated, windows closed, that can build up. You could think about it the same way with respiratory aerosols as cigarette smoke. So that's how we're being exposed. That means the control measures line up from there. Ventilation and filtration. You wanna remove those aerosols from the room by either diluting them through ventilation or cleaning them out of the air through filtration. So we put together a lot of uh, tips for how to do this, but it really is that simple. If you have a, a window, you open up the window, open up the door across the room, establish a cross breeze. Uh, you can use some of this stimulus money to do the wholesale fixes that are really quite necessary in many schools, but there's actually simple solutions that are plug and play. And here's where we like the idea of using a portable air cleaner with a HEPA filter. You can buy this at a local hardware store, anywhere online, you plug it in, it can give you four, five, six air changes per hour of clean air in a typical classroom. And it doesn't require this kind of wholesale fix of the, the mechanical or the HVAC system. So while I do think we've underinvested in, in school infrastructure for decades, I'd like to see a lot of that stimulus money going to, to the fixes in schools that may, may take months. Some schools may take millions of dollars, but that funding is there, will provide years and decades of benefit. In the short term, that should not be used as a reason to say, well, we have to do months of fixes. We can't have kids in school. You could also get these portable air cleaners. You could have tomorrow, plug them in, turn them on on high, and you're really done. Uh, 
and you're getting all of that clean air, that you know, clean air through uh, the HEPA filters capturing all any aerosol, uh, any airborne particles. So it can be that easy. Um, and I think the, the why it's needed, so we're, we emit these respiratory aerosols, you have to dilute them out of the air or clean them out of the air. The problem is the standards that we design all of our buildings to, including schools, has not been designed to provide enough ventilation or filtration. So that's the crux of the problem. We have these buildings, and this is your office, schools, home, everywhere else, not bringing enough air, not using good enough filters. We have a respiratory uh, virus. We have aerosols that accumulate indoors. Our buildings are not designed the right way right now, so we have to supplement that. Bring in more outdoor air, use better filters, supplement with portable air cleaners with HEPA filters. Really, that's it. And, and as far as just like the cost per student here for these portable sort of interim measures that would be sufficient to take care of air cleaning, this isn't that expensive. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, that's right. Think about the, you know, I wrote a piece with a colleague, Rich Gorsey, last August or last July. Uh, we, we estimated for the entire country a billion dollars to have a portable air cleaner in every single classroom that would essentially double the effective clean air. Right? So that might sound like a lot of money. It's really not in terms of the stimulus or the cost that we've endured through this pandemic. But another way to think about it, Rich, my colleague has put it this way, is to say it's actually the cost you know, of two uh, Frappuccinos at Starbucks per student. That's it. It's really, we're talking about small dollars here uh, that would provide a massive benefit. Kids could be back in school. You've essentially addressed the shortfall in the school uh, ventilation and filtration system. It's plug and play, and it would provide a lot of reassurance. And by the way, these are evidence-based approaches. We didn't make this up when COVID hit. The, the science on portable air cleaners and HEPA filters in removing particles is really decades deep. People use these all the time in uh, places with wildfires, the same mechanism, right? The wildfire smoke comes in, you want to clean the particles out of the air. That's outdoor air pollution. Just talking about similar particles, but these are the ones that are from our respiratory system. So the mechanics are the same. It's a, it's a, it's a, an approach that's really grounded in the hard science, and we know has been effective uh, really for years as it's been studied. So you, you said in the new CDC guidance, this ventilation got its own line item. It finally got up on the marquee where, where it belongs. Uh, for a solution that I, I got to admit can sound a bit to some people like click here for one quick trick to solve, you know, COVID mitigation strategies, <laughs> you know, it seems like a straightforward solution, but it seems like there may have been underwhelming traction on this front. So it, do you believe that that's the case? And if so, you know, why? Yeah, it's funny you said that. Um, right. It's finally on the marquee. And, but I, I got to interview Dr. Fauci last year. Uh, and in his response, when I asked about ventilation, he said, you're telling me we're in the middle of a pandemic and you're saying open up the windows? Yeah, I'm saying open up the windows. Like sometimes the solutions don't have to be all that complicated. And in this case, you can't pop open the windows. These portable air cleaners, they're, they're pretty cheap, relatively speaking. Um, so why the reluctance to acknowledge you know, the role of ventilation filtration? Quite honestly, um, I think our field, people who study indoor air quality, building science, has been on the sidelines in this response from early on. First piece I wrote was February 9th, 2020 talking about airborne transmission and ventilation, filtration, portable air cleaners with HEPA filters, right? We've known this right from the early days of the pandemic, but it took us a while, months, even a year to get through to CDC, World Health Organization, and quite honestly, the medical community to say, this is our, you know, we should be bringing in the tools from our field. We know how to assess exposures and risks in buildings to all sorts of hazards, chemical, biological, radiological, this virus is new in many sense, but it's not new in terms of how it's spread or how it needs to be controlled. And we know what tools work. So there's been a reluctance, um, I think, to embrace the, our field of building science, indoor air quality science into the infectious disease 
uh, paradigm and approach. Uh, but that's, you know, we've turned the corner there. I have to say, you know, the past couple of months in particular, I think it's been embraced and clearly, right, as you said, it's now on the marquee. Ventilation is one of the top things mentioned for schools. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, in the ed sort of research community, we've had some recent research that has come out over the past several years that say, yeah, air quality matters. It, it uh, just sort of directionality of winds up from pollutants can be manifested in school outcomes. Ostensibly, you'd see sort of the same benefits from these, uh, these exact same ventilation improvements. Is that right? Yeah, you know, you, it's, you, you raise a key point. And, um, and this is something we've talked about for a while that, you know, right now we're really focused on disease avoidance as we should be during a, a pandemic, but really there's so much more to health and, and these improvements to ventilation and filtration provide benefits beyond infectious disease transmission. In fact, my team wrote a report school, we call Schools for Health. We published it a couple of years ago, talking about all the different ways that ventilation, filtration and other healthy building attributes impact student health, student thinking and student performance. So for example, there are many studies showing that higher ventilation rates are associated with uh, reductions in upper respiratory symptoms and uh, associated with fewer missed school days if you have good ventilation. In terms of thinking performance, there are studies showing a 5% decrement in power of attention related when, when the CO2 levels is, are high, meaning ventilation is low. We see this all the way through uh, performance on test scores, on reading comprehension, so these, these um, improvements are really things that should have been done a long time ago, and they'll provide a benefit now for COVID. And if you do it right, it can provide a benefit that goes well beyond COVID for other infectious diseases, influenza, but also these other uh, impacts on kids, on their learning and their thinking, their power of attention, and even performance uh, on test scores. So, Joe, in your USA Today recent op-ed, I think you said that CDC... Uh, got the guidance mostly right. So uh, there's something hiding behind that phrase. Where are the areas they, they should have done a little better? Well, I think some of their uh, language on um, testing gets uh, a little tricky because, you know, I'm not quite sure we should be testing asymptomatic uh, kids in school, right? If it's asymptomatic and they're less likely to transmit, uh, I think some of this will lead to mass isolation and quarantine. Actually, we saw this in the UK couple hundred thousand students quarantining. I think that's not necessary, not the right approach. And uh, in early June, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post with my colleague, Michael Mena, uh, also at the Harvard School of Public Health, and, and talking about how, what kind of testing we do like, and that would be the use of rapid tests in a test-to-stay approach, which is very different, not isolate everybody, but if you have a close contact, if someone does have COVID in the school, you can do these daily rapid tests. They're relatively cheap, get an answer back in 15 minutes, if you're negative that day, it means you're not infectious. Kids can stay in school. If it changes the next day, they come out of school. But in that way, you're not quarantining entire classrooms, entire schools. You're not shutting down entire schools. Or you don't have the case like in the UK where you could have hundreds of thousands of kids that are not in school. And it gets back to really what CDC said uh, and that I like in the new guidance. The, the focus, the primacy has to be on how do we keep kids in school? How do we do it safely? But how do we keep them in? And, and if we handle or we think differently about the testing strategy, we can actually do this test to stay approach rather than quarantining, you know, thousands or even tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of kids this fall, as we know there will be cases, uh, particularly as uh, the, the weather turns. So the, the, the testing language is something that was included in the CDC guidance that might have been uh, suboptimal. Are there any omissions from the guidance that you wish were included that might help guide schools in this new year? 
I think they got it right. And, and, and one I didn't cover all that much is, you know, they're, they're really started to pull back on the, the non-issue of surface transmission, right? For all the past year, we had schools even closing for an entire day for deep cleaning, enhanced cleaning. Well, I think this latest guidance finally ends that. Uh, and they, CDC started to talk about this in March and April that acknowledging what we've been saying since last fall, that surface transmission is not as big a problem as it was first thought. Uh, we can pull back on this. I think this new guidance actually nails that uh, and has schools, you know, correctly say, you know, once a day cleaning is fine, good hand hygiene is fine, focus on ventilation and things that really matter. So really, you know, in, in, um, uh, I, I do think they, they got it right in this, in this latest guidance. There's enough flexibility in it, which I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with in my field, to be honest, but I just think it reflects the reality of the pandemic, different vaccination rates by region, and we're going to have to have flexibility in the system to, to handle that. So that's a good evaluation to to start the year off of. Let me let me ask the doubters question. Uh, there's been some uh, sort of mixed use and application uh, trust in CDC guidance over the past year. Uh, that raises the question of whether the good CDC guidance that you think they really got it right is actually going to change anything. I mean, California just announced that um, it will require all kids to mask regardless of vaccination status. Then they pulled back from that. On the flip side, you have other states like Texas and Arizona prohibiting schools from requiring masks. Uh, I, I wonder how much sway the CDC is really going to have in the face of this. You know, these things are up in the air and there's there's some politics involved, I believe. I'm not positive. Yeah, there sure are. And, uh, you know, I ended my piece uh, with a thought on this that, um, uh, you know, despite I, I think the guidance is, is quite good, you know, do, do I think it's going to help? Unfortunately, I, I think the answer is no, for the exact reason you laid out. I, I suspect this year will be a lot like last year in that um, in many regions of the country, including my own in Massachusetts, where schools were ready and we had lower case counts, uh, a lot of schools stayed closed. And in some places without any mitigation, high cases, they were open. I honestly think that's how it's going to go this year. You're already seeing this, right? As you, as you pointed out, some states are, are going much more strict than CDC. Some are saying that thanks CDC, but we're just going to do it our own way anyway. I suspect that's what's going to happen, unfortunately. Um, I do, I do, I, why, I, why I still think the CDC guidance is good, despite it may not have be useful, is that it, it moves away from that top-down approach, right? If CDC came out with a statement or new report on school's guidance that said this must be done or is overly stringent, then I think you'd have a bigger problem. Uh, but this gives districts the, the needed flexibility. You know, I don't think it should just be still, it shouldn't be schools as normal. I, schools really need to get a handle on this ventilation filtration issue. And if they do, it can go a long way to keeping kids in school, preventing uh, any of this backlash or any of these cases happening or any kind of spread happening in, in, in schools. Um, and help mitigate this. And again, it's not hard. And we've had a long time to do it. It's really quite frustrating that it hasn't been done in many school districts. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying hands up, we're done. I really think we have to make these improvements in our schools uh, to be sure we get kids back to start and keep them in school. This virus is no different from other coronaviruses in that it's seasonal. Right? We're seeing cases rise right now in certain parts of the country or uh, low vaccinated uh, places, but we're also going to see a rise in November, December, just like last year. It won't be anything like last year because we have many more people vaccinated, but there'll be a rise in cases. And there's going to be pressures as we see cases rise in kids to close schools, pull back on some of these things. Well, if you put in some of these strategies we've been talking about, some of those pressures will go away. You can start to decouple community spread 
from what's happening in the school. Really, that's what we care about, right? Can you minimize transmission in the classroom, in the school, regardless of what's happening uh, in the community. So, you know, even if in school districts that are feeling pretty good right now, areas with low community spread, should still get their, their act together uh, in terms of their building so that it acts as a, as a resilience measure against whatever might come in November, December, January. Yeah. So you're talking about the future in November, December, January, and I'm, it, you can't see me gulping over the uh, podcast, but that's what I'm doing. I'm thinking Delta variant. I'm thinking the post today in their tracker says the number of cases doubled in the past week alone. You're seeing it really shoot up, particularly in some of the red states. Some of the states that from our tracking last year showed they were doing the best at getting kids back in person are also the ones that have lower vaccination rates, climbing cases. I, I wonder, what do you expect to see in the fall? Do you expect to see a lot of unevenness? Predict the fall rise for us. Uh, how bad do you imagine it will be? And, and how much has our truly remarkable vaccines insulated us from the kind of closures that, uh, you know, we all fear? Yeah, so it's super dangerous to predict the future, as you know, but um, I'll try. I think I think we're going to see pockets, right, of cases spring up. But I think there's two things that are working uh, in our favor. One's great and one's uh, not so great. One is we do have high vaccination rates in, in many parts of the country. And even in states that are low vaccinated right now, they've still done a good job at vaccinating the most vulnerable. So it puts some numbers on this. Most deaths, 80% of deaths have occurred in those over age 65 even in low vaccinated states. Most of them are 75%, 80% vaccinated of the over 65 groups. So that should help a lot in terms of the morbidity, mortality and hospitalizations that we'll see in the older age group. So that's helping. So one part's the vaccination role. The other is what contributes to this you know, herd immunity or the number of people who are uh, protected is we've had a lot of infection in this country, right? At great cost. And there's not perfect overlap for who's been infected versus uh, who's been vaccinated, but there is, you know, we have this second effect happening. So in some states, like where I am now, we've had a lot of cases in Boston, Massachusetts, and many people who are protected, quote unquote, from prior back, uh, infection, natural infection, then some who are vaccinated and there's overlap with that group, but those are contributing. So you're going to see pockets in places where either some combination of low vaccination rate, low and in natural infection rate, uh, this is going to hit. Look, if you're older, uh, and you're unvaccinated, you're at risk, the same risk as you were before, except maybe more because this virus, not maybe more, this virus spreads a lot easier. We need, everyone needs to get vaccinated. I mean, that's, that's the top line message, right? This is the way out of this. Where we get a, a benefit, I think, from kids is that as more people get vaccinated, kids, thankfully, are still low risk, even from this variant. We just had another massive study published in England showing the same findings related to risk of death that were published in uh, JAMA and The Lancet, two top medical journals, showing that the risk of death for kids is about one in a million. This new study in England was just published um, two weeks ago, right, and found just a handful of deaths uh, per 12 million kids that were studied. So it's about two in a million in that study. The same thing we knew last year in the JAMA study, it's about one in a million. So kids remain low risk, and as more adults get vaccinated, including teachers, the threat of transmission in the school then leading to an infection in a high, uh, highly vulnerable teacher or a parent at home can be minimized if those adults get vaccinated. So the absolute risk to kids, particularly those who are under 12 who are current, can't be vaccinated right now, is low. Uh, and this has been the saving grace of this virus. It hasn't spared us in any way but that one. 
the kids have been low risk and that continues to hold. So a couple of different factors trying to predict what's going to happen this fall. There'll be pockets and unvaccinated places. We're going to have cases in schools. Fortunately, uh, that, that should remain lower risk in terms of absolute science for kids who are infected. Um, but then we still have to try to keep putting these controls in place uh, related to the building to minimize that likelihood that anyone gets infected in the first place. Right. So vaccination breaks the chain. The mitigation strategies suppress it. And the marriage of the two should see us through. And if I'm correct, uh, some of the one of the studies you were mentioning modeled a very low rate of UK infections. And then the actual infections that came in were well below the the expected very low modeled rate. So it was pretty good news. Yeah, it's good news. I mean, the, the cases rising are not good news, but but clearly, you know, for the past year, cases perfectly predicted hospitalizations and deaths with a three-week, four-week lag, right? It's not a complete decoupling that's happening now, but there is, right? Cases will rise, but the rate of rise of hospitalizations and deaths is lower. That's a good thing. It can still happen. Tragedies, of course, are still happening. But as we get more of the higher risk people uh, vaccinated, adults, and that's adults of every age, that decoupling even gets stronger and stronger. And then cases no longer reliably predict a public health crisis uh, because we've removed or, or significantly decreased that morbidity and mortality that's happening. So Joe, for the folks that are really on the side of, we should have reopened. We, we should have just gone you know, full bore reopening. We could have done this. Some of your arguments could be used to say, you know, we really didn't need to shut down at all. And that begs the question of, were the shutdowns necessary that we saw in in the fall? How avoidable was a, a lot of the missed schooling that we had this year? In, in some states, the majority of the schools for half the year or more. Well, you know, I, I think um, we have to be clear early on. I mean, we were facing an absolute catastrophe and, and we had to shut down, right? The flatten the curve was the right approach. We, we had hospital systems that were going to be overwhelmed. We had a novel virus just tearing through the population and little was known at the time about how severe that would be. So I think, uh, you know, uh, the argument that uh, we should have just let, let stayed open and let it rip, so to speak, is, uh, is, is grossly... Um, uh, inadequate and, and a failed argument for that reason, right? We've had, we've had uh, over 600,000 deaths at this point. It could have been, all the models showed it could have been easily in the millions. And it's easy to see how it could be in the millions because we had all of these measures put in place and still the burden was quite high. Where I think it gets different or interesting was around schools, right? I, I think we let other parts of the economy open up. We didn't prioritize schools. They should have been the last things to close and the first to reopen, but that's not how it went. We had water parks opening, but schools closed. We had bars and restaurants open, but schools closed. To me, that's a failure in prioritization of how we should have dealt with this. We should have placed everything on, on, on making sure kids were in school. That's, what's, right? that's what we should, we're doing as a society. I think it's our number one responsibility. The whole economy, in fact, collapses when that collapses. We've seen this. Businesses can't work. People can't go back to work. Um, so that's first and foremost. And I think that's where our misplaced priorities were. So I'm not, I'm not definitely not in support of we should have just let everything open all the time. But in terms of schools, yes, I think schools should have been open. And I think to do that, we needed these, uh, these to be aggressive in our mitigation measures, just like the plan we put out last year. Schools had three months of lead time to get it right, to put in these measures we've been talking about there in this podcast that are not hard, not expensive, which could have ensured that they stayed open. And not just protecting kids, but also protecting the adults in the school, which I know is a major concern, of course, for teachers and staff in the school. So I think we really failed on schools and we're, and, and, well, many parts of the country did, and we're seeing the consequences of that. 
in terms of uh, kids missing from the system and uh, and impacts on uh, academics and socialization and and uh, and everything else. That's a a rough assessment to be sure. So. Joe, before I let you go, I want to back up a little bit and talk outside of COVID about healthy buildings. In And luckily enough, you released a book last year called Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. So congratulations on that. But can you just give our listeners an understanding? What is a healthy building? Yeah, so uh, thanks. And, um, and the way I start to get people to think about why healthy buildings matter in the first place, I usually do a thought experiment. Uh, and ask people to figure out what their indoor age is. So the way to do that is take your age, multiply it by 0.9. That's how many years you've lived indoors because we spend 90% of our time indoors. So I'm 45, my indoor age is 40, right? 40 years inside my home, office, schools, cars, airplanes, hotels, whatever. And I don't think most people think about the indoor environment uh, as being so crucial to their health until you start to recognize that all the air you're breathing is indoor air. If I ask listeners here, uh, you know, what does it take to lead a healthy lifestyle? Everyone's going to say, oh, I got to exercise today. Uh, shouldn't smoke cigarettes. Got to eat healthy, right? Very few are going to turn to say, oh, you know, I got to think about the indoor air that I'm breathing all day, every day in these places I'm spending my time. And the reality is the past 40 years, we've been in the sick building era. We have not designed our buildings with human health at the center of how we approach our buildings, right? We've, we've tightened up our building envelopes. We've decreased ventilation rates. Engineers have set standards that are not health-based standards, they're energy-based standards. And it comes with the consequence of leading to illness in buildings. Sometimes the mundane, I feel tired in this building, my eyes itch, I have headaches. And sometimes the very serious. I, my earlier part of my career was doing forensic investigations of sick buildings, cancer clusters in buildings, disease outbreaks in buildings, all attributable to underperforming buildings. So we've, we've been in this sick building era um, by design. We've designed our buildings without human health front and center. And what we're trying to talk about in the book is let's flip this. Let's start to design our buildings such a way that we're not chasing sick buildings and sick people all the time. Let's design them optimizing light and water quality and indoor air and ventilation and all these other factors that matter. And then my co-author of the book is John McCumber at the Harvard Business School. So we make the case that not only are healthy buildings good for human health, important in its own right, but it's also a good business decision. When you make these decisions, people feel better in their work environment. They perform better in terms of their work. Uh, it, the building becomes a recruitment tool, a retention tool. So we make, we think, a compelling health and business argument for why buildings are just central to our well-being. So all those architects and building managers out there, your your LEED certifications are out of date, and now the the new healthy building certification is the next uh the next plaque you want to hang in your uh, in your entryway. Is that right? Yeah, there's no doubt the green building movement is transitioning into the healthy building movement, right? Green matters, energy matters, wastewater, all matters. That's not going away. But what the difference is, it's we're really starting to have a broader lens on what, what constitutes health in a building. So it's absolutely right. Last question here, uh, and specific to healthy buildings. When you look at American schools, what's the average health that we're looking at? Are America's schools sick? They are, unquestionably. Um, and uh, it's been a 40, 50, 60 year problem. So let me, I'll put some numbers on it to, to prove it. So we talk about the standard for, that's designed that governs all the ventilation uh, standards in all of our buildings, including schools. It's called the standard for acceptable indoor air quality. Problems in the name, acceptable, it's a bare minimum. So I'll put some numbers on it. In a school, that means you get about three air changes per hour of clean air that, by design. And that, again, that standard 
is a minimum standard not designed for health, but that's what the minimum should be, three air changes. Most schools get one and a half air changes, so about 50% of the minimum standard that's not even a health-based standard. Some schools get even lower, get one air change per hour, about a third of the minimum standard. Again, that's not a health-based standard. And of course, these risks are not distributed evenly. The, the schools with the lowest ventilation rates are the schools that are majority Black, majority Hispanic, and or the schools with the majority of students on free and reduced lunch, so lower income schools. And so you, so you, the, you see the problem right away uh, across the board. You have this standard not designed for health about three air changes. We recommend, by the way, four to six air changes per hour. Most schools don't even meet that because it's a design-based standard. So a standard was set, maybe a school was designed to that, probably met code 30 or 40 years ago, hasn't been looked at since. It's foolish to think that that building still performs the way it was designed. In fact, no building does. The buildings change the day they're open. So we, we don't have a performance-based standard for schools or really anywhere else. And that's the crux of the problem. We're designing for too low a standard, then we don't follow up on it. So is it really a surprise then that schools are not even meeting this minimum standard? Throw in a pandemic and you have a massive crisis on your hands. Buildings aren't designed to the right standard to protect against infectious disease. This is across the board, wide uh, disparities. And, uh, and th this is why we have this problem. Fortunately, I think it's a once in a generation opportunity, thanks to the stimulus funds, to get this right and correct a decades long school infrastructure problem. If schools spend that money wisely, if they do and improve their HVAC system, their ventilation filtration, not only does it provide benefits right now, it could be decades of benefits to their staff, their teachers, the students in terms of their health, their thinking, uh, and their performance. So it's a real moment that we have to grab here. Uh, and I'm concerned that the money won't be spent well, and we'll be doing things like plexiglass instead of these really uh, long-lasting and evidence-based approaches. Well, it, it, it's interesting to think about this as, well, America's schools are sick because we've seen some of these findings where improved indoor quality in schools lead to better outcomes. And sometimes when I look at those things, I think, well, that's sort of hard to believe but if you start with the baseline of a lot of the schools are sick, they're not starting off at an average building level, but some suboptimal building level, then improvements have that much more of an improvement to make. And it both clarifies the problem and helps one understand the importance of healthy schools. Yeah, it's a great way to think about it. That's exactly right. We're starting this way below inferior uh, space right here. So any incremental improvement will have a massive impact. And, and I should be clear, the evidence base is deep, and it's not just in the COVID era, right? This report we wrote on schools uh, across all these uh, healthy building attributes, we have over 200 papers, peer-reviewed papers that are cited. So the evidence is really good. And this is really interesting. If I, as I think about the full body of evidence, we see these benefits in kindergarten students, middle school students, high schoolers, college-age kids, adults, we see the same effects and benefits in Europe and Asia as we do in the US. So it's universal, right? It's not like some of these studies are cherry picking certain populations. Across the board, across all age groups, we see these uh, benefits when you have a healthy buildings lens on how you think about schools or offices or your home or just about anywhere else. So a pivotal year coming up for healthy students and schools in terms of COVID and, and maybe beyond. Joe, thanks for coming on the report card to talk to us about it. Yeah, thanks so much. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Matt Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Joe Allen. As always, I want to thank our producer, Matt Rice, who makes this podcast possible. 
Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. And while you're there, pause for a minute to leave us a review. It helps other folks find the show. As always, send us your questions, comments, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.